I see you conducting interviews with just, for example, at the March for Life or at the Women's March where I think you almost got spit on. I did get spit on, yeah. So have you been... All right. Get the f away from us, Mary. This is public property. Everybody was being so crazy about Amy Coney Barrett. So we decided to go to the Women's March and ask people, what's the most dangerous thing about her? They all were like, oh, she's so dangerous. And I would say, what about her kids? And they'd be like, can you believe she has so many kids? Most people don't agree with that. Most people are not on the same page as these wacko nut jobs at the Women's March. Have you always kind of had a natural instigator streak? Or is that something <laughs> you developed over time? Actually, no. If you ask my family, like, we'll joke about it. My sisters were talking about who would win in the hun Hunger Games. And they're like, oh, Mary Margaret would die immediately. Why would I die right away. Like, I'm the one that goes to protest. I kind of want to be part of the news rather than reacting to it. We need to be telling the stories that aren't being told or else no one else will tell them. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to The Loopcast. Today, I'm joined by possibly the most cited reporter in The Loop, I think, of all time. I'm with Mary Margaret Allahan from The Daily Signal. Mary Margaret, thank you for taking the time. Thank you for having me here. And that is quite an honor. The most cited reporter in The Loop. I've put that on my tombstone. <laughs> we could send you a little <laughs> plaque or something if you want. But I felt, I felt like I'd throw that at you. Uh, the last time, this is for The Real Loopcast Heads. Mary Margaret actually took an interview with us before we were even doing video. It was out in Vermont, uh, in the car, I think. Mm -hmm. A little bit in the car, a little bit at the location. So um, you're just doing investigative reporter things. So it was very in character for you. Yeah, it was. We were, that was literally, maybe we could call that a gorilla interview because we were on the road, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it was a little, a little ratchet on my end, but we made it work. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I want to go back to the start for you because uh, you're one of the uh, most kind of in, on the ground, maybe boots on the ground reporters that we have maybe for Catholic issues, pro-life issues, culture war issues. And I was just kind of curious how this all started for you. When did you decide that you wanted to become a reporter? Yeah. I mean, I, I kind of decided pretty spontaneously. I didn't think that I was going to get into reporting. I only took one journalism class in college and I thought I hated it because my professor who uh, was a very nice lady and worked for the Associated Press was very strict about not using adjectives. And the stuff that we did in her class was very kind of boring, you know, not really political stories. And I thought, why would anyone want to do this every day? This sounds so boring. You can't even write well. And then I started working for a conservative publishing company for a little while and the Kavanaugh hearings happened. And I was so radicalized by the insanity that was the Kavanaugh hearings. You know, you had all these supposedly mainstream news outlets jumping to report all these anonymous sources that ended up turning out to be complete fabrications and lies. And, um, you know, the way that the media handled all of that, I was so unimpressed and I was following it really closely. So it got to the point where I was thinking, okay, there's clearly only a few outlets that are actually trustworthy out, out there. And I, you know, I'm sitting there at my desk thinking about what's going on in the world. And I thought, I kind of want to be part of the news rather than reacting to it. It just seems like a more fulfilling job for me as, you know, Mary Margaret to be pursuing the news rather than just waiting for it to happen. So I took a leap of faith and I applied to the Daily Caller News Foundation, which is the nonprofit side of the Daily Caller. And I got the job, which was I thought it was amazing at the time because I don't know, I didn't know that much about journalism. And they taught me 
everything I know. And, you know, it was, it was really hard for a little while. They really ingrain in you all these different journalistic concepts and uh, they're very serious about not making mistakes. You know, if you have a typo in your headline or your lead story gets spiked and it's a huge shameful thing, you have to be very embarrassed about it. And I, uh, after a little while, all of a sudden I realized I could write fast. Um, I could write accurately and I was starting to have better news judgment. And from there, I just started this culture wars beat and it's been really fun. I never would have thought that this is what I'd be doing, but here we are. <laughs> yeah. And, and I have a few questions on that because, so I just watched Lady Ballers the other day and one of the funniest threads through it was how journalists are just soul-sucking, evil, principleless people. And I think we've seen such bad examples of journalism that people don't necessarily know what good journalism really looks like anymore. If you could give us a summary of the school of hard knocks that you got at the Daily Caller, like what, what would your quick summation of true journalism be? What'd you learn? Well, it's a, such an interesting question. We actually talked about this in the Edify video that I did a couple months ago, um, which was so fun. Uh, I think journalism has changed a lot since the beginning. You know, once upon a time, the ideas of journalism were very different than what they are today. And, uh, you know, you have this vision of the reporter with a pen and pad that goes everywhere and is fighting for the truth. Nowadays, at least for me and other conservative journalists, a lot of what we do is filling the void that the mainstream media leaves. Um, because you'll have an outlet like the Washington Post that will pick all these different topics to cover, and then they'll choose all these topics not to cover. Um, and so for m myself and what I learned at the, the Daily Caller News Foundation was we need to be telling the stories that aren't being told or else no one else will tell them. And it's kind of a privilege, actually, to be able to do that. You know, and I think of, for example, during, during COVID, when all of these governors and lawmakers and politicians we're saying, do as I say, but not as I do. And they would, you know, say, don't go anywhere for Christmas. And then they go home for Christmas or they'd say, um, you should be staying home. And then they go dine at one of the most expensive restaurants in the country. The liberal media outlets didn't have any interest in showing people that hypocrisy. But myself and my colleagues, former colleagues at The Daily Caller had so much fun saying, actually, you know, this governor said this and did this. Here's our story to prove it. And Americans are so interested in that kind of content. They, they, they crave it. They want to they call people out. So it does well, too. It's, it's, it's rewarding, and uh, it's what we should be doing anyways. But more directly to your question, I think journalists, good journalists nowadays, should be seeking to tell the truth and to shine light on the truth. You know, we say the truth will set you free. I think that applies to journalism in, in pretty much every aspect. And um, we, we do well to, to report the stories that aren't being told, but also tell the stories that are being told in a truthful fashion without hiding certain facts or, or, um, you know, trying to steer people away from a certain narrative. People are smart. They can, they can tell when you're uh, pulling the wool over their eyes. So they deserve to have the facts. Yeah. There's a joke in there about uh, Gretchen Whitmer getting her husband to try to drop their boat in Florida when they weren't oh allowing gosh. people to buy food. So uh, I'm not going to get into that. It still makes me angry to this day. But one thing that I I have really admired with your coverage is kind of back to your origins, which makes sense now. A lot of times, especially during the Kavanaugh stuff, not just the initial hearings, but then when uh, a man came to D.C. to threaten his life and there were protests going on outside of the homes of these people, which is illegal. Uh, but what you did, and I thought this was just seemed common sense, but apparently not. You went with a cell phone and you just covered what was going on. And I didn't see it anywhere. I didn't see it on CNN. 
I didn't see it on many of the liberal outlets, but even some of the so-called moderate ones, there's really no mention that what was going on was illegal and shameful. Like the people outside were also threatening the lives of Kavanaugh, ACB, things like that. So um, was that an opportunity that you just kind of naturally recognized uh, to use social media to kind of amass these, this interested following that supports now your work everywhere you go? Yeah, I mean, I think that video especially has a huge power to draw people to your following. Um, and so I've definitely gained a lot more um, traction with stories and videos by posting videos. But I will say that in, in situations like the protesting outside the homes of the justices, those are cases where, you know, that's that's kind of my field of expertise. I've been following, uh, you know, Roe v. Wade, abortion, that whole arena for a while now. And so when I heard that these protest groups that I, you know, I, I keep an eye on them, I'll have tweet notifications on for some of them. They know me, I know them. Um, when I heard that they were going to the justices' houses, it was just kind of a no-brainer, right? You want to see what's going on. And it's one of those situations where you know that the other reporters aren't going to be there. And now I say that with caveat, there are good reporters that were there, like Julio Rosas, one of my friends, he was there. Um, I think my friend Jerry Dunleavy went with me to one time. There's a bunch of reporters that will go and, and will keep an eye on what's going on. But one night in particular, when we went, uh, there was no one there except us. It was freezing cold rain. And we ended up getting footage that went, I think it went viral. I ended up going on Hannity and talking about it. And that was like you were saying, we literally just filmed it on our phones, showed people what was going on. We don't need to say anything fancy. You just literally quote the protesters and tell people what they're saying and show the police outside. And that's that's just exposing the truth. And it ended up being beneficial for us, but also it was just good journalism, right? We're showing people what's going on. And all these mainstream media outlets aren't willing to report on that because it doesn't fit with their agenda. You know, they think that the justices should have protesters outside their homes because they think that those justices are evil because they're conservative and God forbid they might be Catholic. So that's what's going on there. And that's part of the reason those are those are fun stories to cover. Yeah, definitely. And I think this poses a larger question. It sounds like you have the freedom, which you earned, to go chase down stories that you just see as relevant. And you're not told, hey, we have this narrative from the top, uh, only report on what fits this. So is it, I, I mean, of course, this is conjecture for you, but in some of these other newsrooms, is it just handed down top from the editor? Like, hey, we're not going to really touch this. And if you do, this is the way to talk about it. Uh, and from your perspective, how did you earn that ability, seemingly other people don't have it, to just chase down what's relevant, what, what you want to chase down? Well, first of all, I'm really privileged to work for the Daily Signal. My boss, Katrina Trinko, is awesome. And we work together on a lot of different projects. And um, I think she respects my news judgment and I respect hers. And so that's part of the reason I'm able to do a lot of the stuff that I'm able to do here. And um, I'm really grateful to the Daily Signal for giving me a platform to do that. But I will say in other newsrooms, I think that it's kind of a combination of the bias that comes from the top and then the reporter's inherent bias. If you look at the bio of a Washington Post reporter who's covering, I don't know, LGBTQ issues or abortion, odds are she's got her pronouns in her bio. And if you look at her tweets and stuff, she'll be like liking Planned Parenthood stuff. She might even have been open about donating to these groups. And yet she'll bill herself as this unbiased reporter who's just doing her duty, you know, democracy dies in darkness, their whole tagline. 
Um, and so I think it's kind of a combination of the people at the top and then the individual reporters themselves. And this is borderline worse at local outlets. I keep hearing about this from different groups that are trying to um, make change on the local level. They're so bothered by these local outlets that the reporters are just like very, very obviously activists and they go out there with their agenda and they write a story where they don't, they don't share details of a story. Like we just did a story um, last week, I think on uh, a outlet that knew that this hospital was doing surgeries on girls. So teenage girls, and they were removing the healthy breasts of, I think five to 10 girls a year. And the outlet got that information, but didn't include that in their story because it didn't fit their agenda. So in their story, they said, oh, no one's doing genital surgeries, but they didn't say they are doing top surgeries. And that's a kind of sad and gross example, but it is just a very, very common problem that we have in local news. Well, it's a problem that people need to know about. I mean, it's, right. it's again, shocking that that's not covered. So, uh, and I feel like I have to ask this as well. You have AMDG in your bio, you're Catholic. Yeah. I mean, that is your mm -hmm. bias. So, and I've talked to some other reporters about how to handle this, but like you mentioned with the, the trans issues, a lot of times those reporters mm -hmm. will have pronouns in their bio, of course, or flags of different kinds. You know, you have something Catholic in your bio. How, yeah. how do you handle... Uh, being upfront, I guess, about that bias, but then still yeah. trying to be as faithful as possible. Well, look, I never said that I'm a, uh, I'm a unbiased reporter. I'm a conservative reporter. So I'm still telling the truth, but I never said that I don't have opinions. Now, I try to keep them out of my reporting so that people can re read the facts and, and get a more objective take. But I never build myself the way these mainstream reporters build themselves. And I think that's where the problem is. Uh, you know, if they were open about their biases or biases, I don't know. I was homeschooled. It's hard for me to say some <laughs> words. But if they were open about that, you know, it would be it would be a, a more fair playing field. I think everybody who follows me on social media knows I'm pro-life. I don't care if they know that my reporting is still trustworthy. And if they don't want to read it, they can read someone else's. Yeah, I love that approach. It, it kind of reminds me and we've had conversations about this in the past as well. The Walter Cronkite era that people feel like they keep chasing where it felt like people were just honest to you all the time and there were no real biases. I mean, my hot take is I think there's always been biases. I don't think that there was ever this unbiased, perfect news world. I think that social media and the internet has really revealed that to be the truth because there's more people on the ground with a camera in their pocket, basically like, hey, man, this isn't real. Um, so I, I really appreciate your answer on this. And so I've actually bumped into you in, in the wild. You're, you're very hardworking. Uh, you've <laughs> been at many events. I see you conducting interviews with just people on the ground. And I've always enjoyed watching those because it feels very authentic. And me seeing you on the ground, it is authentic. You're just going up to people and asking them, like, for example, at the March for Life or at the Women's March, where I think you almost got spit on. One of my favorite videos I've ever seen, maybe. On, yeah. um, you're just asking people there. And so I have just personal question for you. What's the secret to a good man on the street interview? Yeah, I feel like a good man on the street interview is just kind of just... As it happens, you know, you walk off to someone. The first thing I always say is, hey, do you mind if we ask you a question for a YouTube video? Because, you know, we have to ask that, get their consent. A lot of the times it's good that you ask that, too, because later when they don't like the interview, they'll be like, you never asked my permission. And we're like, we literally have yes, you on camera saying. <laughs> yeah. And it's, I had a girl at the Women's March tell me that one time and she literally marched. Uh, she started going up to a cop to tell him that I hadn't asked her for permission. And I was like, I will go with you because we have it on camera. March, so. March feels very appropriate. Oh, yeah. And um, so, yeah, you know, you say, uh, can we ask you a question for a YouTube video? And they'll usually say yes. I like to just go right up to them with the mic because 
I think it helps them feel like it's already happening kind of, and um, they're more likely to interact with you if you're already close to them. And I just ask them questions. And sometimes, sometimes it goes downhill, you know, you're talking to someone hostile and they don't like what you have to say. And in those situations, I kind of play it by ear, like depending on the crowd. Like, for example, if you're at a more hostile environment already and you're someone's being aggressive with you, sometimes I think it's best to just kind of cut the cut the interview and head out did so you it, don't cause did problems. Did your cameraman get hit at a certain interview? Um, we have a funny clip where I like yell at someone. and I'm like, don't touch my camera guy, um, <laughs> which we think is really funny. My colleague, Tim Kennedy and I. But I, I he did get hit. I wasn't with him in California. He was. He was filming Antifa at a pro-trans protest, or uh, I think it was I think it was anti-trans ideology protest actually, and he did get hit by Antifa. So he's a hardworking, yeah, hardworking guy. <laughs> this is this is the tolerance and inclusion crowd, right? Yes, gotcha. exactly. Okay, um, but sometimes if they're friendly, you know, you can ask a whole bunch of questions, and we'll usually go into it with a theme. Like when I was at the Daily Caller, one of my favorite men on the streets I did was. Uh, everybody was being so crazy about Amy Coney Barrett. So we decided to go to the Women's March and ask people, what's the most dangerous thing about her? Because I wanted to kind of get a good feel of what people were going to say about Amy Coney Barrett. I think I have a guess as to what they said. That was one of my favorite videos. You should watch it. They (laughs) all were like, oh, she's so dangerous. And I would say, what about her kids? And they'd be like, can you believe she has so many kids? Uh, And they would just go off. And you might say, well, what's the point of that? That just seems kind of mean. But I think that the point of... I mean, on the street like that is most people don't agree with that. Most people are not on the same page as these wacko nut jobs at the Women's March. And so when you show them what these crazy people are saying about a Supreme Court justice, it helps them realize, oh, that's a far left contingent. Maybe I shouldn't be listening to the crazy things that they're saying here. And maybe they think that on other areas. Um, And so I think that was a fun one. We also did. uh, We asked people. Who's more dangerous, the Taliban or Texas Republicans? That was when uh, Texas passed a really pro-life law. That was really fun. Yeah, uh, we we you can be creative. Do it's you, fun to come up with them. Another question for you: Do, Have you always kind of had a natural instigator streak, or is that something you <laughs> developed over time? Actually, no. If you ask my family, like we'll joke about it. My sisters were talking about who would win in the hun- Hunger Games, and they're like, "Oh, Mary Margaret would die immediately." And I was like, that's so mean. Why would <laughs> why would I die right away? Like, I'm the one that goes to protest. But um, apparently, they're tougher than I am. Yeah. So maybe maybe they should be the ones out there doing that man on the streets. Call them out. Call them out. And, and, and one other <laughs> thing that I, I feel like now's a good time to talk about. Uh, one thing that I appreciate as well about your social media is uh, you share a glimpse into your family life. I know you're the oldest of 11 kids, big Irish family. And oldest girl. Oldest yeah. girl. Sorry. Oldest girl. Yeah. And I know that it's sometimes kind of scary to people, especially with big followings, to share their family. So why do you feel like it's important to you to share a glimpse into that large family, large Catholic family life? That's a great question. And I actually, I, to be honest with you, I go back and forth on it. Um, you know, if something weird happens and I feel like maybe I shouldn't be sharing too much about my family. Uh, but I do. I really think that, uh, first of all, being from a big family is such a huge blessing. Like there is no greater blessing in my life than my family. I have uh, four sisters and six brothers and my sisters are my best friends and the boys are just a riot. They're too funny and they all love us so much. So, you know, when we go home on the weekends, they'll cancel plans with friends just to hang out with us. And it's really, it's really amazing. And I think that when I was a kid, 
people were less receptive to big families. You know, we might go to the grocery store with my mom and people would make rude comments or, you know, just kind of act a little bit snobby about our big family as if there was like something wrong with my mom for having so many kids. And there's been some kind of cultural shift lately where when I tell people I have 10 siblings, they're like, that's amazing. That sounds like so much fun. And I never get any kind of rude comments. And I think that sharing the beauty that is a big family with other people is a great way to help people see that living a life that's not centered around you, because let's face it, when you're from a big family, it has to not be about you most of the time. Living that kind of life is more fulfilling and, and more, uh, just it's more conducive to happiness in, uh, you know, the true sense of the word. And that's not to say if you don't have a lot of siblings that you're not living a fulfilled or or good life. But um, I found that it's really amazing to have so many siblings that need you to help them with a paper, drive them to get their hair cut or, you know, take them to soccer or read them a book, stuff like that. It's just it it has been a huge blessing in my life. And I think that it's important to share with other people. But that being said, there's a fine line. You got to be careful. So. <laughs> yeah, you got you to gotta be smart, of course. I'm sure you've probably learned how to be smart about that with a big audience. I mean, that's even something that makes me a little nervous, but I, I, I'm yeah. actually really happy that you do that precisely for what you said. I mean, I think that there are just people that uh, really look down upon people or I don't know if it's out of ignorance or it's just a, a reflex as like kind of something to say, but it does come yeah. across hurtful. I know to a lot of women in my life that have big families, come from big families. And I think maybe the reason the tide's turning a little bit is I think people of our generation, a lot of their parents are divorced. I think there's a, a yeah. horrible scourge of divorce that went on around the financial crisis in 2008, maybe like then or directly after. And then we yeah. hit COVID where there's just this epidemic of loneliness. All of a sudden, no one has any human connection. And big families, I mean, it's impossible to hide. <laughs> there's so much <laughs> yeah. connection there. So it really is. What did, so your parents, of course, a little bit of a trailblazer at a time where maybe it was a little frowned upon. And of course, like living out this beautiful, full Catholic life by being open to so many kids. Uh, what did they do to help keep you guys so close? I'm always curious to ask this because I, I desire it as well as, as a father yeah. and trying to build that kind of family. What was there anything specific that they did that really stuck out to you to keep you guys so close? Um, that's an interesting question. I don't know if they necessarily focused on like keeping us close, but it was more the attitude of everyone's got to pull their oar for the ship to stay afloat, right? So, you know, if if one person doesn't do their job in cleaning the kitchen, it's not going to be clean. If everybody does their job in cleaning the kitchen, then it's clean. But if Daniel doesn't wipe down the table, then the, the table is dirty, right? So I think it's kind of that mentality of everyone's got to chip in in some way for everything to work. And I, I think also we just kind of grew to understand that things would be more fun if everyone was there. And that's definitely exacerbated now because some of us are far away or we don't live at home. So when we are home together, it's just, it's so much more special and so much more fun definitely much louder, but, um, we love the <laughs> chaos. <laughs> um, but I think, you know, we, we spent a lot of time as a family, like we would always go to Sunday mass together. Everybody went together. It was abnormal for us to have stragglers at different masses. Uh, largely we would eat meals together, you know, lunch, not so much breakfast. Some was kind of, uh, you know, more kind of dependent on who was around, but dinner, everyone would largely eat t dinner together. And uh, we would say family prayers together every night. 
growing up, we had this long list of prayers and we would pray for every single person in our extended family, which takes a long time because my dad had eight siblings as well. And there's a lot of grandkids on either side of the aisle. Um, But I think it was just doing all those things together. You know, that was the expectation. And even now uh, we have that expectation for how we do things. We have a tradition on Christmas Eve of all the siblings going to shop together for a secret Santa. And this is actually a heartbreaking story I'm going to share with you, Tom. The tradition was we all go to Target together because Target has everything. (laughs) Target has toys. It has jewelry. It has, you know, clothes. It has boy stuff. It has books. You could get gift cards. And now Seamus, my youngest brother, approached me when I was home recently. And he was like, Mark, where are we going to go Christmas shopping Oh, that's sad. Because the whole family has boycotted Target. That is sad. So we're going to have to figure that out. But I trust you. We'll figure it out. Yeah, I, I think we will. We'll, we'll, you know, maybe Walmart. Shout out to Seamus. Shout out to Seamus, though. Young King. He's like, no, we're not, I know. not going to do the tuck stuff this year. Like, we're going to go shop somewhere that supports everybody. I know. Based Seamus. Um, yeah. <laughs> Shout out Seamus. <laughs> so another question for you, because clearly your faith is very important to you. And it was yeah. really interlaced in your childhood. Now you carry it on as a Catholic reporter. You're very public about that. Um, I've seen some reporting done by you that is more impressive and more accurate than Catholic, so-called Catholic outlets. There's some that come to mind. I'm sure you can think of some as well. I know that yeah. you work for the Heritage Foundation, which is uh, conservative, but maybe not necessarily. It, it isn't Catholic per se. And yet you have provided such good coverage on pro-life and Catholic issues. Uh, why do you think that you're able to provide that kind of accurate reporting where other Catholic outlets maybe are missing the mark? Well, I think that for starters, being Catholic is a huge help in reporting on Catholicism. Uh, A lot of reporters who cover religion nowadays are just shockingly religiously illiterate. Um, When it comes to Catholicism, they have no understanding of doctrine or of tradition or even the basics. Uh, They just, they, they don't, they know so little that they, I don't know why they're touching the matter at all. So I think it helps to be someone that was raised in the faith that understands the faith. Um, where you can clarify when the Associated Press just like makes something up about Catholicism. That's just an example. I don't know off the top of my head if they did that. Um, they have confirmed. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> but uh, I, that really does help. For me at a uh, conservative outlet, you know, it kind of, if I'm going to write about Catholicism, it does have to kind of cross over with politics or uh, as it pertain, uh, pertains to the news. And uh, so that might be, you know, for Uh, President Biden, he's being called a devout Catholic by the media. I wrote a story for The Daily Caller that is one of my favorites I've ever written, where we just very thoroughly laid out Biden calls himself a devout Catholic. Here's where he actually stands with the church. And we just laid out, you know, all of that. We talked about how he says the rosary and he's constantly carrying a rosary. He goes to mass every Sunday, but he's the most pro-abortion president in American history, et cetera, et cetera. So we go down the line. And I think that those kinds of stories are really important because while CNN is calling him a devout Catholic and uh, CNN's fact checkers are calling him a devout Catholic, that's misleading. That's not true. And we need someone to be setting the record straight there. And I, I do get nervous, though, reporting on the church. It is scary. You, you know, you imagine meeting God at the end of your life and he's like, why did you write this story that way? That wasn't true. <laughs> you used an church. adjective. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so if I, you know, for example, if I cover Pope Francis, I try and be really careful. I really do. Um, You know, you can't trust a lot of translations. Uh, It depends on who you're sourcing from. If I'm nervous, I just won't do it because I don't want to I don't want to misrepresent what the Pope said. 
Yeah. And I think there's a huge responsibility there to take that really seriously. For sure. And, and I respect that as well. And we think about that a lot at Catholic Vote, where you want to give deference and respect to the office where it's necessary, but also right. when we do have verified facts to share that with people, because people need to know, especially if you're Catholic, that's the leader of your church. Right. Um, so uh, another thing that I wanted to ask you, so you are with the Independence Women's Forum. Yeah. Uh, it, sorry, I'm blanking on the exact term. Are you a fellow? I'm a, yeah, I'm a, a fellow, a visiting fellow with the Independent Women's Forum. That is awesome. So uh, we actually yeah. had Riley on the program, Riley Gaines, who was the nicest, sweetest, most generous. She gave us an interview. It was incredible. I look up to her a She's lot. She's amazing. And so I think, I mean, this kind of falls into the Catholic thing because there's Catholic outlets that are not covering the gender issue correctly, right. maybe using even activist language when it comes to that. So with the Independence Women's Forum and you covering these beats, what are you hoping to accomplish? What are they hoping to accomplish by bringing in people like you and Riley? Well, first of all, Riley is awesome. And I met her when I went to the uh, NCAAs uh, where she raced Will Thomas, otherwise known as Leah Thomas, the trans athlete. And Riley and I connected after the NCAAs. And I broke the story when I was working for Daily Wire about Riley uh, losing her trophy to Will Thomas. Wow. So she and I go way back yeah. and that's one of my favorite stories that I've done. But I, uh, I think the independent women's forum does amazing work, you know, whether it's independent women's voice, um, independent women's forum, they have brought together this crew of female athletes who are so brave, like Paula Scanlon, uh, Peyton's one of them, Riley Gaines. We have a, a video we're working on here at daily signal where we interviewed a whole lot of them and we're hoping to put that out soon. And um, it's just it's, it's such a needed organization that puts puts a platform up for the, puts these women up on a platform and helps them to speak out in a cool way. It's just it's glitzy. It's uh, powerful. It packs a punch, but it's also really substantive. And I love it. So with with what I'm doing with Independent Women's Forum, I'm doing different stories. Uh, if you look at my byline, you can see which ones are affiliated with Independent Women's Forum. They'll say at the bottom that I'm a fellow with them. And uh, we have some more projects coming up down the line, and I'm excited to you know, keep fighting the good fight and writing these culture stories. Yeah, that's awesome. And, and one that actually, it wasn't for Independence Women Forum, but I think it was even today. Uh, you wrote an exclusive uh, about Joe and Serena Wales. Um, so her 11-year-old yes. daughter was on a cross-country school trip, and she ended up actually sharing a room and a bed with a biological male student. This story is crazy. Yeah, I just, I mean, uh, let's open up the floor. I saw that headline and was shocked. Um, how, how did that even come about? Did they reach out to you? So, yeah, so the Alliance Defending Freedom is an amazing law firm that represents uh, a lot of clients like Joe and Serena. And um, this was an exclusive that we got from them because Joe and Serena are sending a demand letter that got sent today, actually, to the school district. And what happened here was, thank God, the girl, little girl did not end up having to share the bed with this young boy, a little boy, honestly, at the end of the day. Um, she was on a trip, a cross-country trip with this school group. Her mom was on the trip as well, but she was staying in a different room, obviously. And uh, the little girl who they, they referred to as DW, I think, which made me laugh because it reminded me of Arthur, <laughs> which I wasn't allowed to watch as a kid. I don't oh, know that's how know you know that. you're Catholic and homeschooled yeah. <laughs> was if you weren't allowed to watch Arthur because DW was a brat. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so this little girl, DW, she was sharing a room with two other girls and then this boy who was from another school. 
And the boy identified as a girl and he kind of looked like a girl. So they didn't realize. But once they were alone in the room, according to the parents, the boy told them, actually, I am a boy and I identify as a girl. And DW was supposed to share a bed with this kid. And so she went in the bathroom and she was scared and she called her mom. She said, I'm supposed to share a bed with the boy tonight. And thankfully, her mom was there and was able to help her sort it out. But the parents, I spoke to them on the phone and they were just so outraged. They were saying that the school had made a whole fuss. Girls were on this floor. Boys were on this floor. No one was allowed to go on the different floors or go in each other's rooms. And yet this kid who identified as a girl, the school knew that he identified as a girl. His parents apparently were operating in, uh, quote, stealth mode. So that's what they were calling not telling anyone that their child was actually a boy. And so the school knew and they allowed him, they were going to allow him to share a bed with this little girl. Um, I'm not super familiar with the ins and outs of school trips. I never went on any because I was homeschooled. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> we could go back to that. There's this big but, yellow thing called a bus and you, you yeah. take it and you go. <laughs> but I don't know if it's normal to share beds on a trip. I was seeing a lot of people on Twitter reacting no. to my story saying, that's not normal for kids to share beds anyways. Um, but the whole thing was so strange. and. So the parents want to know, all right, the parents want to know, are you going to keep doing this? What's your policy? Because they have kids that are supposed to go on trips this year. I asked the school district, how often has this happened in the past? Because if parents' children are sleeping in the same bed as kids that identify as another gender, that's something that the parents should know about. If I were a parent and that had happened, first of all, I would be so angry. And second of all, I would want to know when it happened and I would want to talk to my child about it and I would want to make sure that everything was okay and that, you know, nothing weird had happened. Uh, and that's a parent's right. So I'm curious what we'll hear from the school. I haven't heard anything from them yet, but it's only been a couple hours. So yeah. And these are supposed we'll to be the adults in the room. But yeah. uh, another thing that, and you've done such a good job with this, uh, people that are dealing with school policy when it comes to uh, biological boys and biological girls. First off, I mean, these are kids. You, you made such yeah. a good distinction, but like, Who's confusing this 11-year-old to the point where this mm -hmm. is even happening? I don't even blame the kid. I don't blame any of the kids. I mean, who are the adults in the room? But the last time I was talking to you, uh, you were in Vermont, and you were actually covering a, a volleyball team. I mean, this video was awesome. I highly recommend anyone go see it. Um, but these kids were basically too terrified because there was a boy, I believe, on the other team that they were playing against, and I think he concussed a girl. I mean, it was, I don't know if this was the same one, but there's a huge physical advantage to the point where it was scaring the girls. Because, of course, men should not be playing in women's sports. Yeah, this was a crazy story. And thank you for your praise of our video because it's one of my favorites we've ever done. Um, th in this case, there was another, there's been multiple incidents in Vermont lately. They have a big problem up there because uh, the state allows boys to play on girls' teams and use uh, women's facilities, um, which is, you know, kind of hard to go up against when it's the state saying it. And uh, these girls were so brave. They were 15 years old. And we reached out to the parents after we saw the story in local news. I did a story where I talked to a whole bunch of people who spoke to me anonymously because it's scary, you know, to like go out and take a stand on that, especially if when you're from a really liberal town. And so a lot of people spoke to me on condition of anonymity, um, you know, fearing for their privacy or their safety. And uh, after we published that story, they had such good support from the community that when we reached out and said, hey, we actually want to come up and put you guys on camera. We think this is a really compelling story. They were brave enough to say yes. And it was 
it was actually a really cute trip. And I think of it really fondly because we stayed in this really cute little Airbnb, which was, you know, it was in, we had like wolves outside. We could hear them howling, had a little fireplace. Um, it was, it was cute, kind of, uh, <laughs> primitive, but we liked it. And then the, the place that we filmed was this little tiny diner in Randolph, Vermont. The owner was sympathetic to the cause. And so we went and set up all our equipment in there and it was a diner slash bowling alley. So in our video, you can see the bowling lanes behind us. And we had amazing breakfast before and coffee the whole time. And it was the ideal filming location because I'm a big diner girl. So as soon as they said, do you guys want to film here? I was like, yes, sold. Let's do it. Yeah. Shout out to the people listening in Vermont. Um, yeah. But I, I guess the connection between these two stories that I'm, I'm thinking of is I can think of many stories that reporters would attach themselves to that would basically get them put in a magazine right now. Mm-hmm. And you are talking to these two groups at different times, of course, but to the point where they're scared for their safety and anonymity. But these, of course, are if people knew about this, I think most average people would be kind of enraged that that either their daughter's getting hurt or their daughter's sharing a bed with a, a boy. Right. Um, are you my, my question is. Are you one of the only reporters that are willing to go to these people, basically, because like, say, a reporter from The Wall Street Journal that maybe hears this and covers culture issues is just either too scared or they're getting the narrative handed down and like, nope, we can't touch this, even though it's interesting news? That's a good question. I actually don't know the answer to that because I, I personally, part of the reason that I, I cover these stories is because I, I like it. I think that it's really important. I think it's fun. I think it's really compelling and it's really fulfilling for me. Uh, and I find it hard to believe that there aren't more people that would want to do this. Maybe they don't have the opportunities or the resources or their outlet doesn't have the budget. Uh, but I, I, I just, I really do think that if once you start, you know, talking to these kids or these young women, like Riley, like she told me her story and we reported that, like, it'd be hard to listen to her story and not feel sorry for her that she had to go through all that, all those years and years and years of swimming and hours and early mornings and, you know, careful dieting and stuff like that to just lose your trophy to a guy. So I I just find it hard to believe that more reporters wouldn't want to do this. Maybe they just can't. But I do think that we need more conservatives, more young people uh, trying to be reporters. There's so many internships in D.C. Come do it. Email good reporters that you know. They'll want to help you. I mean, the swamp is a scary place, but there's some good people here. So So (laughs) And then I think it. the natural question here is you at one point made the decision to be public, even on issues that maybe are publicly unpopular or could warrant negative attention towards you. I've had my own experiences with this by starting this podcast, understanding I'd be putting myself out there. Right. Um, what advice would you give to someone to get past that initial fear of like, oh, what's the blowback going to be? What's going to happen to my reputation to start publicly proclaiming the truth as they understand it? Well, I would say, first of all, it's not for everybody. Um, Certain temperaments, I don't think that this kind of job is good for you. If you are more anxious or prone to anxiety, maybe you want to follow another path. You know that maybe this isn't the right um, avenue for you to use your talents or or to to speak the truth. Um, I don't think that everyone's called to do that. And for some people, uh, that kind of public pressure or criticism is really unpleasant. And I totally get it. So I wouldn't want anyone to think that I think they're a coward for not, you know, speaking up in that way. Um, But second of all, I will say as a reporter, um, like I was saying, I'm pretty open about my beliefs. But with the stories that I write, a lot of the time, I'll just share them and say what happened. And you'd be surprised how little hate you get for just saying what happens. Um, A lot of the animosity might 
flare up, but it's not necessarily directed at you. And I've found this kind of funny because there, you know, when I was first starting, I was kind of like, all right, bring it on. Let's see. And it wasn't, it was so much less than I expected. Um, So I think there's that first of all in reporting. Um, But second of all, when you are speaking the truth, truth is truth. You know, it's not going to change. And that is such an ally to have on your side when you know that what you're saying is, is factual and it's correct. And uh, if you're Catholic, you know that God is on your side too. So I I think that it's a lot less scary when you know that. Now, if you're, you're writing op-eds, that's a little more, that's a little, you're putting yourself out there like you, Tom, with this podcast, uh, that's a little scarier. So I admire that a lot. Maybe I'll get into that realm one day. Think you Um, definitely could. it's, it's harder than, um, well, I don't know if it's harder. I think it's harder than, uh, just reporting because you are putting a little more of yourself and your opinions on the line. But again, there's so many good people on our side and that's an interesting, that's an interesting perspective to come from like a pure reporting background where you can kind of just rest upon the facts. Whereas, you know, with podcasts, you're giving opinions then your opinions are kind of up for debate, which I fully accept. Yeah. But, um, I think there is an element now with social media where there's uh, there's citizen journalism and then also like we wouldn't have boys bunking with girls if people would have spoke up on the truth sooner. Right. We, we wouldn't have boys spiking on girls in volleyball if people would have spoke up sooner. So I think maybe less from a journalistic standpoint, but more from just a common sense how we change society for a positive right. way is to speak truth and not be ashamed of that. If oh, yeah. everyone did it, there wouldn't be this kind of gorilla. Oh, I need to kind of say it. I need to be anonymous. There right. would just be half the country being like, yeah, this is completely unacceptable. I'd, I'd actually say it's more than that. It's probably people say the silent majority, but really all the scariest people that love to throw around hate on the internet, we're talking about like 1% of people, 2% yeah. of people that are just yeah. the loudest. So I, I think what's cool about your reporting is it gives people facts to stand yeah. upon to then go to people with. Oh, like uh, the biggest thing that happens to me is people say, oh, this isn't happening. And then you put something out like, oh, it is happening. And it's good that it's happening. But you're (laughs) like, but you just said this wasn't as the critical race theory is like the first thing that comes to mind. Well, it just reminded me, actually, I'm working on a story right now and I'm not going to share what it is because, uh, you know, I want to all to come together. But (laughs) but I was this woman emailed me and she was referencing the topic that I had Uh, brought up and I had posted about it in a forum and I was trying to get people to talk to me. And she was like, look, I don't think anyone's going to talk to you because they're all afraid of what will happen to, you know, this or that if they speak to you. And I don't normally do this, but I replied to her with that Edmund Burke quote um, that I think he says, the only thing necessary for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. Um, Because I was like, come on, you guys are the ones that need to speak up and tell me um, the truth, because I'm not going to make it up. I want to tell, I want to tell their stories and what they say. And if they're too afraid to speak up, then, then we won't have it. So it's really, you know, the bravery of everyday Americans to share the insanity that's going on in our world that enables people like me to put it out there, people like you to promote it and talk about it and elevate it to other people who can see it and do something about it. Yeah. Keep that quote in your back pocket. That one fires me up. <laughs> that's an awesome one. Um, I, so I have you here and I want to know, uh, because you're on the ground. Well, the first thing that comes to mind is you're talking to people on the ground. You, you're seeing exactly what's happening. A lot of people just see things filtered through the internet, which in some cases you can get honesty, but in other cases you get narratives or kind of 
uh, cherry picked things. So what in your experience was something that when you did go on the ground and you talked to people completely changed your perception of what you thought about it previously when you saw it on the internet? That's a good question. I actually, I went to El Paso in, um, in May with Tim Kennedy. He's the guy that got uh, hit by Antifa. Shout out to Tim. Yeah. Shout out to Tim. We go on a lot of trips together. And, um, we went to El Paso to show what was going on at the border. And that's not really something that I cover a lot. I, it's not really my area of expertise, but my friend, uh, Virginia, who normally covers it, I believe she was on a very well-earned vacation and it was the end of title 49, I think. And I needed to get down there. 42. For, title 42. Thank you. Okay. See, I don't cover this very much. And, <laughs> um, and so I had to go to the border and I wasn't expecting the level of just emotion that I felt down there. Um, you know, uh, I think heritage, the heritage foundation where I work, that's daily signals platformed here has amazing analysis and understanding of the border crisis. Um, because you need to have a nuanced position there that uh, correlates empathy with just sound common sense. And I think Heritage does a really good job of that. But once you get down there, I just wasn't prepared um, for all these people. You know, they'd come through the gates to get into the trucks and we'd be waiting there at the border to watch them come across. And I remember this one group, it was uh, a bunch of kids with their dad and the kids were all waving at us like we were paparazzi or something. They were like so excited all these people with cameras were standing there and they were so dirty and their clothes were all awful and they didn't have any belongings with them. And the dad made eye contact with me and I could see that he was so embarrassed that we were filming them walking across into our country with no possessions and getting in that truck. And, you know, I have very strong feelings on immigration and that didn't change my mind, but I was not prepared for how sad it made me, it it was just incredibly sad. Um, so, uh, it's, it's, it's a privilege to be able to travel and, and to see these stories firsthand, because I think it's really good for you to have that nuanced perspective and to be able to, um, see the humanity of people rather than just hear about it. Yeah. And and thank you for sharing that because when you get that experience, you get to share it out with your audience so that they can get an honest take on it as well. Uh, and then I try to hopefully get equip people with these interviews with something that they can take away. And as a reporter, what would you say is an easy, bad reporting trick to identify, to see that someone is not telling you the truth in an article? I would say, keep an eye out for the word care. You see that someone's using the word care in a headline, usually like in, in like, for example, like gender affirming care or reproductive health care. And they use it in a lot of different senses. Now you see that word it's a really good idea to investigate a little further and see what they're talking about because odds are it's just a euphemism for something else that they don't want to talk about. Like, oh, gender affirming care. That sounds nice. Oh, actually, we're talking about cutting off people's genitalia and breasts. So it's not. <laughs> um, so th- that kind of thing. Look for like if you see like a nebulous phrase, that's usually a sign that someone's trying to pull the wool over your eyes. Uh, and I, those ones are the ones that grind my gears the most because I'm like, my editors would say that, what does that mean? (laughs) They'd be like, how, how are people going to know what you're saying? Like we should fix that. Whereas these outlets are getting their phrasing and stuff from these, uh, activist groups that literally say, use this phrase. It will help people to be more aligned with our cause and the writers do it. So that's my two cents there. Keep an eye out for 
nebulous phrases especially care. Yeah, I have to say that we've allowed a shocking amount of euphemisms to just get into the lexicon for everyone. And, and one thing that I noticed too, especially when it comes to the gender issue, is people using pronouns that are of the other supposedly conservative outlets are using things like gender affirming care, are mm-hmm. using things like the pronouns of the people. So it's it's confusing to everyone, but I even find myself falling into it sometimes. I think precision of language is so important. And then also as a Catholic, telling the truth. For sure. It's so important and it's hard. Sometimes we catch ourselves. Like Riley, for example, has been really great lately about saying, why are people calling uh, men, biological men? Why not just say men? And um, I actually thought that that was really great. And I have been using biological men for a while. And I thought Riley's pointer there was very true. You can still be clear and grammatically concise in your stories. It's hard to talk about this kind of thing. And for a while, I was thinking that adding biologically male kind of help people see it better. And then I was like, what? No, she's totally right. Yeah. It's just a man is a man. So Riley's the best. Gotta be clear. She's she, awesome. She was one of those people when she kind of came out, it seemed like, well, she was going to dental school. And then she's <laughs> yeah. like, oh, well, I got into this. I have this opportunity and I actually owe it to people to yeah. protect other female athletes. And sometimes when people do that, you know, maybe they're not the most built for media, but some of her back and forth on Twitter are some of my favorite things. Like her and Keith Olbermann is some of the funniest back and <laughs> forth I've ever read. Like he calls her like a mediocre athlete. And then she's like, just taking a serious video, all her trophies behind her. I mean, she was built for this. So I'm, I'm excited to see where she goes. She's awesome. Yeah. Um, okay. So Mary Margaret, O'Han, thank you so much for coming on. And I mean... I cannot emphasize enough. Please follow you on X now, formerly Twitter. Oh, yes. uh, do you have other places where people can find you or to help support your work in the future? Um, Twitter or X, as we call it now, is probably the best place to find me. Um, I'm on Instagram, but that's more of my my fun stuff. So I don't know if that's the best place to follow me. And uh, you can catch my reporting at dailysignal.com. So keep an eye out for us there. And Daily Signal on YouTube. That's where we put a lot of our videos. If you want the man, the good man on the street content, if you want to see you potentially getting spit on at women's marches, that's the uh, the move. Yeah, I don't know if you're searching for that content. I have some <laughs> concerns, but you know, it's out there. It's out there. Yeah, <laughs> the good, the bad, and the ugly. Mary Margaret Alhan, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you.